0: Family is an important thing, I think about, uh, I think about my own family, you don't need to tell me about family, I'm Mexican, I love family, okay, (laughs) I think about about my own family and how just growing up in a family with four boys, a mother and a father, and God bless my mother, uh, she had to raise five boys, so, so it was a lot, it was a lot in that family. I just think about how family, and how it's a beautiful thing and how it's something that we can all identify with and hopefully we have families that, that love us and that can know us. This desire we have to, as we would say, to know and to be known, to love and be loved. And the context of family is oftentimes where we see that. I'll think about when we were growing up, how we would we would go to McDonald's. My father was, I mean... He was a pastor. He also worked a part-time gig to help support the family. And he wasn't breaking the bank or nothing. And we'd go to McDonald's. Everyone would go together. And we'd order it. I remember clearly, man. Two large fries and two large Cokes. And we would all come together. And it's like, this is family time. And Jesus wants us to share. And pour it all out. I mean, it was just like this fantastic time where the family just got together and loved each other. I'm embarrassed to say it, man. It wasn't until high school. I remember standing, in this is a true story. I remember standing in line next to my buddy, and I was like, "So, what, what do you want to share?" And he's like, "What do you mean?" And I said, "Well, what do we mean?" Again, he's like, "I'm gonna get my own food," <laughs> <laughs> and then it clicked. And then, for the first time in my life, I realized, oh, Dad did that because we were poor." <laughs> all families you know shared their fries and drank the same coke you got a coke and a sprite i just thought every family did this i guess only mexican families or maybe at that only if you were a poor one i didn't i didn't realize that till i was <clears throat> till i was older I thought that everybody every family shared their shoes and all that going down as as we've gotten older uh, the family dynamics has changed and that's certainly a hard thing it's been harder as people have moved and gotten married in our family and done different things. Um, just even some of the dynamics as people in my family have changed and the family has grown um, seemingly in different directions. We were at a Thanksgiving dinner this year and one person from our family mentioned that as we went around and talked about what we were thankful for, one, family from, one person from our family mentioned he was thankful for God's grace in his life, and the abundance of it, and how he was so thankful that God was gracious to offer his son for him. And how another family member mentioned, uh, you talk about God's grace too much for me. That's something you're always talking about. And I remember thinking, why would you say that? You can't talk about God's grace too much. just thinking like, what on earth has happened to my family? A family that used to be like this, they used to share McDonald's fries together. What has happened? Maybe this is an experience that we all can share. As we have grown older, and as our brothers and our sisters and moms and dads have maybe married, or they've gone off and had children, or been in different parts of the United States, maybe we can identify with what this is like. It seems like every day I hear on the radio, I actually really like this, when they bring the soldiers home, right? and the soldiers will be reunited with their family, and how that's just a beautiful thing, and how that brings such a, a warm feeling to me. And then uh, this YouTube video I recently saw, which, which brings tears to my eyes, but they have these huge boxes, right? And the soldiers get inside, and, and they get their kids or their wife to open them. And they open them, and he pops out, and they just start crying, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm at work, I should be watching this. <laughs> it's, it's not, the, not the mess, it's really bright in here. <laughs> so it's just, you know, family is an important thing, and, and, And as our family dynamics change, maybe we don't see family members like we used to. We don't don't see our father. Maybe our, our father or our mother is no longer with us, and that's a painful thing. Maybe we have a brother or a sister that we're estranged from, that we would like to love better, that we simply do not get the opportunity to love anymore. And maybe this makes us wonder, how can I belong to a family how can I be a part of a good family that just loves me? What happened to those days? God in His sovereignty knew that family would be important to us, I think, because He chose to write about it in His Word. and He chose to address this very issue of the importance of family. So today, we'll look to Scripture. And as we look to Scripture, I just want to ask us one question. And this is a question I want to probe as we delve into today's sermon. I want us to ask, what can I do to belong to a family? What do I need to do to be a part of a bigger family, a family that loves me? What can I do to be in a family? We'll turn to John chapter 1. We'll start at verse 10. We're in the third week in our Advent series here. And I think that in some ways, everything has kind of been leading up to where we're going here. Not that the other passages have not been important. But I think there's a very real climax that's happening here in the thrust of this verse, which we'll see released in 14 and following. So we'll start here, John chapter 1, verse 10. If you want to belong to a family, there's two things we're going to see today. Two different things to belong to a family. One, if you want to belong to a family, you have to believe. Number two, if you want to belong to a family, you have to receive the rights of that family. Two things. You have to believe and you have to receive the rights. The first thing is that you have to receive. You have to receive and you have to believe if you want to belong to a family. Verse 10. He was in the world, this is Jesus, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive them and they believed in his name, he gave them rights. First thing is, if you want to belong to a family, you have to receive. Reception is not enough. The difference between those that receive the word and those that don't is also coupled with this idea of belief. And and we're indebted to this, to the creator of the universe. You see, verse 9 says this, The true light which gives light to everyone that's coming into the world. What light is this? This is the same light from Genesis. John, excuse me, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? The Spirit of God's hovering over the waters of the earth as they're w- without form and they're, without vo- they're just void. Empty and no form. And then in verse 3, this is the first time in human history that we have recorded God speaks. The divine creator of this universe speaks. And what does He say? What are the first words that He says when He speaks? He says, let there be light. When the divine creator speaks, Light begins to create. Light begins to illuminate that which had no illumination. The dark crevices of this world are now lit up as light brings life to this world. Literally, this is God's speech here that's speaking. In technical terms, we call this the Logos. Literally, the Logos, or Jesus, really, as he identifies with the light in John here, is the one who is creating the world here. That's the one that we're indebted to. And that is the person that comes to us to invite us into his family. In verse 10, he was in the world. This is the creator. And the world was made through him. In other words, the world owes this to him. The world owes their reception to the creator because he's the one by his divine speech has created everything. The world owes this to him. Yet the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You see, he comes to two different people. He comes to the world in general, to people, and he specifically even comes to his own. There's a Bible professor that says that perhaps this is the saddest verse in the whole Bible. And that he comes to his own, and his own did not receive him. And so the first group does not know him, meaning they just have nothing to do with him. And the second group, as he kind of refines that focus even more, not only do they not know him, there's a reception that happens. But the difference between those that receive and those that do not hinges on one idea. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. You see, reception happens when you believe. It's not just about receiving, it's about believing. I know that oftentimes we will use this terminology when we speak to people. We use this terminology of accepting Jesus Christ. And I know what people mean when they say that, so I don't give them a hard time. But I'm not sure that that's the way Scripture speaks about how we are to understand what Jesus is doing for us. You see, to accept is to somehow cognitively accept that He's done something for me. Oh yeah, I accept that propositional truth. People say it all the time. Oh yeah, that's true. But they're distanced from it. Receiving is a language the Bible uses over and over you receive what Jesus has done because he's done it whether you acknowledge it or not Will you receive that and more importantly not only will you receive it? Will you believe what he has done? In other words the close association that's tied with reception is also belief you cannot have receive something and not believe it they go together there's a, there's a processing that not only happens in accepting here, but there's a process that happens here as you begin to believe it. A little while ago, I got, a, I got a text message early in the morning that awoke me from my slumber, and someone texted me, and she said, I'm worried. And I said, what are you worried about? And she said, everyone's posting on so-and-so's Facebook. And they're posting terrible things as though something has happened to her. They're all saying, we miss you, we wish you were here. And she goes, "And I'm nervous because I think something has happened. And certainly this is an alarming thing to wake up to. And as I awoke, I called her and I prayed with her. And I I said, well, God is in charge and God is good. And God will take care of her, whatever has happened, if anything has happened. And sure enough, we, we got to work and... It hit the news, and it turned out that one of our our co-workers was murdered by her husband. It was a terrible thing. I'll never forget every single person I talked to that day, and, and every person that was in that department in particular. I'll never forget. They all told me the same exact thing. They all said, I cannot believe this happened. I can't believe it. I just talked to her. I just saw her. I can't believe it. You see, because it's one thing to receive news that something has happened. It's quite another to believe that something has happened. And that is what Jesus is charging us to do here. As He comes to His own, and His own, not only do they not know Him, they don't receive Him. He says they won't even believe in Him. It takes a a deeper level of processing to go from knowing and accepting and understanding to actually believing what He has done. So then... To those that don't believe and to those that don't receive, why is this true? Why might they not be receiving? Why might they not be believing? There's probably a few different reasons, so we'll tackle two in particular. Number one, I think that the reason that people do not receive, and I'm talking to Christians and non-Christians here, This this totally applies. The reason I think we sometimes do not receive what Jesus has done is because I think we refuse to accept his Lordship in our lives. We refuse to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. We refuse to come under his authority and rule in our life. You say, well, what does that mean? I'll use the definition that the theologian named John Frame uses. I really like the way he defines lordship. He defines lordship of Jesus as three things. Authority, presence, and Control. Jesus' lordship can be defined as his authority in this world, his presence in this world, and his control in this world. You remember a few years back, there was a famous pastor who came under fire from a lot of people for advocating this idea that we had to surrender our lives to Jesus. And in doing so, we were surrendering to his lordship. We were coming under his rule. And he got attacked from so many people saying he's advocating for works righteousness. And I said, what are you talking about? He's talking about the gospel. He's saying that it's more than just a prayer, although that's a helpful part of what it means to receive what Jesus has done. He's saying that when you pray, you not only begin to receive what Jesus has done, but you begin to believe it and you begin to act it out. And so to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ is to be under his authority, his presence, and his control. What does that mean? His authority is to know that he's in charge of everything. That when bad things happen, that Jesus is in control. That when something happens to someone you love, that Jesus is still at the helm. There's never for a second where he is not in control of what is happening. You remember the book of Job. Satan has to ask permission because there's nothing that is not under the authority of the lordship of Christ. And so to believe in Jesus is to come under his lordship and to recognize his authority. But not only his authority, his presence, the fact that he is with us here and now, brothers and sisters. He is in us and with us. Matthew 28, go out to all the nations about me, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you always, he says. And in John, he even says, uh, it's better that I go. I'll give you someone greater so I can always be with you, the comforter. So Jesus and the indwelling presence of the Holy Trinity is always with us. So we're not only acknowledging His authority in our lives, we're acknowledging His presence in our lives. We're also acknowledging His, 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 uh, excuse me, His presence and His control. We're also acknowledging His authority. He's in charge. That if I believe in Jesus, that I'm going to do what He says, and I'm going to listen to what He says, that I'm not going to pick the verses that work for me and take the verses that don't work out. So we have to understand that the Lordship of Jesus is... Authority, presence, and control. Now, what happens if if we don't see authority, presence, and control in perfect unison here? If we take any one of those things out, we have a God that we've made up in our minds, and it's a very bad image of who Jesus is. So, So let's break it down. If we have only control and authority, we have a Jesus that is in control and a Jesus that is in authority, but he lacks any real presence in our lives, that's like a distant ruler. You know, when you you hear people say, well, if there is a God and he is powerful, he certainly don't care about us. That's where that type of idea permeates from. It's a false understanding of who Jesus Jesus is. They understand that he's in control and they understand that he's in authority, but they do not understand that he is also present with us, that he is loving us, that he's watching us, that he's taking care of us here and now. Maybe we understand that he is present with us. So we understand that he is in control and we also understand that he is present but we do not understand that He has authority in our lives. That's where God becomes the grand puppeteer, right? Well, we're just puppets doing whatever He says. We have no say-so in the matter. Certainly, if if God only has presence and control, but no real authority, He never has any ability to command His people or to allow them to love Him because it's distance in the authority. Perhaps we see God as one who... uh, has authority in our lives and presence in our lives but no control that's like a lame duck that's what we call it right you know in the presidency one guy's elected there's a point in time where two are elected right one guy is still in office for a couple of months but the new person has been elected already Anything he does in that time period, we call it that of a lame duck because he has no real control to make any real change because he's on his way out and the next person is on their way in. If we don't understand that Jesus is in control, we are in danger of making Jesus the lame duck who has no ability to be able to control what is happening. He's a bystander on the outside. So if we understand Jesus' Lordship properly in our lives, we have to understand that He is in authority, that He is present with us, and that He has control. Those are super important things if we're going to understand Jesus' Lordship. So some people will not receive and not believe because they fail to understand the authority, presence, and control that Christ has in their lives. Other people, though, To use C.S. Lewis' trilemma, other people, as C.S. Lewis would advocate, misunderstand that Jesus is Lord. They would favor that, as C.S. Lewis would put it, that Jesus is a lunatic or a liar. Now, what if Jesus is a lunatic? What if Jesus is a crazy person, some people would posit. Some people think that. They think he was a good man, coming around, saying a bunch of things about the fact that he was God, but that he was delusional. If that's your understanding of Jesus, then no wonder you don't want to receive him. No wonder you don't want to surrender to his lordship, because he's crazy. Nobody listens to a crazy person. (laughs) I wouldn't. But if he's not crazy, he's not a lunatic, and maybe he's a liar. Maybe he is fantastic at deceiving people. In fact, he convinced these 12 guys to follow him all the way into their own deaths. He's just super good at lying. Maybe you don't want to follow Jesus because you think him a liar. But if you don't think Jesus is a lunatic, you don't think he's crazy, and you don't think he's a liar, then you must acknowledge that he is Lord. And so some people will not receive what Jesus has done because they refuse to believe that He is Lord. They refuse to surrender to the Lordship that He has in their lives. But friends, to those that do believe, to those that do receive, something beautiful happens. How can I belong to a family? Well, the first thing you got to do is you got to believe, right? You want to belong to a family? The second thing you do is you receive the rights To be children of God. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him. To those that believed in his name. He gave them the right to become children of God. They were not born of blood. Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man. But of God. Those that receive and believe what Jesus has done. Not by their own doing. But by his doing it says. They now are welcomed into the body of Christ. They are now welcomed as children. You say, what does that mean? As a child of God, what does that mean? What type of rights do I have that I don't already have in my family here on earth? Three rights in particular. As children of God, you have three unique rights. You have rights to a father, you have rights to a family, and you have rights to a fortune. Father, family, fortune. We're going to break each of those down individually. Number one, as a child of God, you have the right to a father. Maybe you don't have a dad for whatever reason. He ran out with you. He's no longer alive. doesn't matter. You have the right to a father. Forgive me. I don't mean it doesn't matter. (laughs) Certainly it matters. (laughs) What I'm saying is that we have a heavenly father who's in the business of welcoming us into his family, who's in the business of receiving us, and loving us and adopting us. And that's a weighty thing. Don't you think it's such a scandalous thing Jesus is the first person recorded in scripture as saying, the father this, or my father, directly addressing like that. It's such a scandalous thing that people are angry. They don't understand why he would call the divine creator of this world, Father. Because that's a scandalous thing to think that he who created the world is, in fact, your father. God uses familial language so that we know the intimacy of that relationship that's supposed to be occurring there. That God is, in fact, our father. I talked to my personal father here on earth, and he grew up in a very dysfunctional family where his mother was married and remarried several times. And I told him, what was that like, Dad? not having a constant, not having a dad in your life to be able to love you and take care of you and show you what it meant to be a man. And he says, um, he came to a point where he realized that there was too much disappointment, that he couldn't depend on men anymore. He said he came to a point where he had to realize that it was God who was going to be his father. And what a beautiful relief and the weight off his shoulders to realize that The creator of this universe was welcoming him to be a child, and that he had a new father. I was at a conference recently, and I had a meeting, and it was a really important meeting. I was talking to someone from another college, and the meeting went okay. It was was okay. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't stellar, and I, I walked away actually a little bit disappointed, and I remember my buddy texted me. He said, how'd the meeting go? And I go, it was okay, and he goes, what happened? I go, I just didn't go exactly the way I would have hoped. And he said this, he said, sorry, brother, pray to the father he might comfort you. That's, uh, that's from Corinthians, right? The father of all comfort. And I was super comforted in that moment because up to that point, I had been praying, certainly and talking to God, but I've been talking about God in this very ethereal, kind of abstract sense. I think that's sometimes what we do when we talk to God, we talk to, oh, dear God, this and God, this, and he is God. And you can dress him as God, but he is father, friends. He is Abba. He's daddy. That means something, man. God is your father. He's in the business of wanting you to address him that way. That you're his children. For those of you who have children, you would never, ever want your children to call you parent. Hey parent, how's it going? Hey, person. You laugh because it's ridiculous. God wants you to call him father. Now, how come some of us have a hard time addressing God as Father or understanding God as Father? This is super important, okay? Psychology will teach us that the way that we interact with our Father on this world is sometimes the feelings or the ideas that we project into our Heavenly Father. This actually, we call this idea attachment theory. It's this idea that if we do not establish a healthy attachment with a person on in, in front of us, that we will have relational attachments that will be dismembered later on in life. But this translates, I see, more often than not with how we interact with our own dad here on earth. And based on what that relationship looks like, the translation this way will be much easier or much more difficult. So what type of father experiences do we have that are sometimes preventing us from receiving the love that the Heavenly Father would like to give us? I could think of a few. One is bad relationship father. That's what I would call him. Uh, maybe your dad cheated on you, on, your, on you and your mom. and You just can't trust, man, you can't trust God the Father. Maybe he was uh, just a bad dad, never present, never around. I had a friend who uh, he hated his dad. I mean, just for real, like, he hated his dad. And I would invite him to church, and it was just a hard leap for him. And, uh, and I remember he told me this, and he was not kidding, and I was shocked. He says, John, I can't trust God because I can't trust my own father. He says, my father never once touched me my whole life. He says, I wish my dad would have spanked me or hit me just so that I could feel what it was like for him to touch me. Friends, if that's the kind of relationship we have with our father here, I could certainly see how you can have a hard time receiving the love that your heavenly father wants to give you. Fortunately for us, our God is not like that. Our Father is not in the business of being distant. Our Father is not in the business of abandonment. Our Father is in the business of adoption. He is in the business of loving. He is in the business of welcoming us into His family. So we need not think about Father as a bad relationship, Father. We need to think about our Father in much different terms. Maybe you don't have a bad relationship, Father. Maybe you have an angry father. Certainly we can all attest to that at some point in time, right? When dad's mad, you're all in the car and mom's like, all right, then we're talking because you know dad's mad, right? <laughs> Just you're tipping point. He's driving and everyone's like this because you already know like <laughs> when dad's mad, it's over. <laughs> maybe you had a super angry father and maybe if you had a super angry father, maybe you think that's how God is. There's a constant cliche we hear all the time. Oh, he's up there with lightning bolts. He's going to strike me down. Where does this come from? Where do do we conjure these absurd ideas about God the Father that He's looking to strike us down or that He's always angry He's always upset whenever you do something or say something wrong or or think something wrong. You always got to be repenting. I'm not saying that we're not living a posture of repentance toward God. but I'm saying like God is not in the business of just looking to get us. God is not the angry Father that's looking to strike us down. God is not the angry Father that's abusive toward us. God is the loving Father. God is a, a just father. He's a righteous father. He's a holy father. Maybe you came from a, a, a good home or a semi-decent home. I would consider myself that for sure. Maybe you were Christianized and you grew up in a different environment. Maybe you suffer from the legalistic father. I can certainly say that we did. And they meant well, but the, the legalistic father is a difficult one. Because it's always telling you what you're doing wrong. And maybe that's how you think God is. You're always wrong to misstep because you think God is going to just wait to trip you up. God is just waiting to see what you do wrong. Because God is all about rules. What you can and cannot do. Maybe you just cannot experience the freedom that God has for you in the spirit. Because for you, your image of God is one that conjures up rules. Yeses and noes. What I can do and what I cannot do. You ever been to the you ever been to the referee hall of fame? It's a great place. Why are y'all laughing? You've never been there because it doesn't exist. Because you hate referees. Because they always tell you what you're doing wrong and they never tell you what you're doing right. Nobody likes someone that's always blowing the whistle, raising the card, throwing a flag. Nobody likes that. God ain't like that. God the Father is not looking to trip you up. God the Father is not about rules. He has rules. But He's not in the business of establishing these rules without a relationship. So perhaps we need to reprogram our thoughts of what it means to be children of God and to have a father. J.I. Packer is a famous theologian. He says this. He says, the more intimate you are with God, the deeper you are in your relationship with God, the more you know God, he says, the more... It should conjure up images of you being a child and him being a father. Hmm. How interesting in all his years of study, he's reduced the Christian life to this very concept that you can tell how mature a Christian is in their walk with God. If they know that God is their father, that's right, brothers and sisters, God is your father and you receive that and you'll be blessed by that. So as children of God, God is the father. But guess what? God also gives us a family as children of God. We have a family. Again, I'm Mexican. I know about family. I love family. I will go to my friend's house. She will start making me food. She'll pull up a chair. In Spanish, they say, mi rey, my king. Man, no one's ever called me a king around here. (laughs) But I'm telling you, when I go to my Mexican friend's house, she calls me, mi rey, siéntate. She's telling me. You guys didn't know I speak Spanish? I do. She's telling me sit down, you're you're my king. I mean, they understand family and they understand the love that family brings. I could not believe, this is a true story, friends. It's a funny story, but it absolutely bonkers. I could not believe it. As a professor at our school, Joe Hellerman, he's a good man, he loves the local church, he's an elder at his church. He wrote this book and it's like, it's like hotcakes, it's like revolutionary. Everybody wants to buy it and read it. I could not believe it. I was at a conference last year and he's presenting on this book that he wrote. And everybody's sitting there and they're, they're waiting because Joel Hellerman's gonna talk about his book. And this book is huge. And he comes up and he says, when, he's a fisherman. He's just got these crazy old jeans and a shirt. Anyone who knows Hellerman knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> he's a good man, but he's like, you're everyday Joel, you just have never expected. And he comes up and he goes, I'm about to say something that's gonna jar you in your Christian walk. And I know you don't think this way, but I'm gonna challenge the way we think here. He's like, and he picks up his book And he goes, the church is a family. And I kid you not, everyone in the audience is like, yeah, church is family. They're all happy. And I'm sitting around like, you've got to be kidding me, man. I got to wrote that book years ago without any education. (laughs) Of course, the church is a family. What else would it be? But then it hit me. I come from a group-oriented culture. Of course, we understand family. Of course, it makes perfect sense that we love one another and receive one another. Of course, it makes sense that we hug each other and that we kiss each other in cheek. That makes perfect sense to me. That's not a disconnect for me. But it's a disconnect for the Western church. It's a disconnect for us in the United States. We don't think about church as family. It was, I'll be full confession. When I left my home church, which was highly Hispanic, and it came to American churches that were highly Westernized, highly individualized, it was a very... Difficult transition for me, going and sitting in a seat and not being known by anyone. And then when we would greet each other, I go like this and the other go like this. Oh, like that's what you do in this culture, I forget. It's just, it's a, it's a mind-blowing concept to me. That you wouldn't think of the people who are sitting next to you as your family. So to that, the, the, the church and the world maybe has an, a one-up on us in that they understand family far better than we do. Now let me give you a couple of reasons that we struggle with the family concept here as church members. These are super important. The two types of people. The dependent person and the independent person. You know what I call dependent church members? I call them vampires. You know why? Wait, what do vampires do? They suck. They suck. and they latch on and they suck and they never let go. Until so they suck you dry and then they go on to the next victim. Maybe we are a vampire brother or sister to someone. We go to our grace group and we think, what can I get out of this group? What can they give to me? We come Sunday and we're like, I don't like this song, so I'm not gonna sing it because it doesn't do anything for me. Highly consumeristic for us to think that way, by the way. Highly individualistic. In no other culture in the world, where they think, what can this do for me? Rather, they think, what can I do for this group? That's how they always think, but we just don't think that way as Westerners. Uh, I'm not coming that week. so-and-so's preaching. Hmm. So it's about you, right? That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, uh, the dependent person in the family that is only in it for what it means to them, the vampire Christian. We have the opposite. We have independent brothers and sisters as well who will never receive aid from anyone. You know, I forgot to say this first service, but I'll say this one. Man, I will receive help from anyone. If anybody wants to take me out to lunch or something, I will gladly welcome it. Brothers and sisters, you can treat me anytime, it's okay. I'll be independent or dependent, that's cool. (laughs) So on one hand, you have the extreme of dependent people who only suck and never give anything into the body here. You have independent people who never give at all. And I bet it hinges on this idea that they're afraid to be vulnerable. That's a scary thing in a relationship where the more vulnerable you come, the more level your relationship becomes with that person. And it's a frightening and terrifying thing to open up and to allow someone to go there. Maybe we're just terribly afraid to be vulnerable. We're terribly afraid to be dependent on people. We're afraid to let them love us. We're afraid to let them know us. We're afraid to let them speak into our lives. I'm so thankful, I promise, for the elders in this church. I promise I can go to any of them and tell them anything, and they will love me and scold me or give me wisdom, whatever I need. I go to Ralph and Kenny quite regularly, and I'm getting to the point where I'm wondering if they don't want me to come to them anymore. But it doesn't matter to me because they're my elders, so I'm going to keep coming. (laughs) And I will... I will ask them about life advice and wisdom. I will give them updates on where I'm at. I will just ask them for prayer. I will ask them for guidance because I truly value the wisdom that they can give to me as as a young man who's desiring to grow and be in the Lord here. So we want to get to a point as family members where we are not dependent or independent. Rather, we're interdependent, we call it. Meaning you can freely give or receive as needed means someone from the church needs a ride, you can pick them up. Someone from the church, you know, doesn't have money for lunch, you can buy them lunch. Or vice versa. You go to lunch and you're not too proud to accept what someone wants to give you. Or you're not too proud to receive something else that someone wants to give you. We want to be interdependent family members. It's super important. So, as church people, we not only have the right as children of God, we have the right to a father. We also have the right to a family. We have the right to a fortune. That's the last thing, what it means to be a child of God. Children of God are rich. That's Ephesians chapter 1. For the beginning of the world, the foundation of the world, we are predestined in Christ to be recipients of the blessings that he decides to give us. Namely, the riches he gives us in Christ in that Matthew 28, uh, uh, excuse me, not Matthew, but when he's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he comes and he announces this grand declaration. What is he saying? He's saying that what we experience in heaven, we can begin to experience a little bit of here and now. We're rehearsing what the next life is going to be like here and now. My buddy who used to come to this church, he used to go to La Mirada. He's planning a church in Downey. And I'm so thankful for his ministry. I'm also thankful for the slogan or or the the kind of the model that their church is kind of launching with as they've started. The model that they say is, we desire Downey, the church, the city they're planning in. We desire it to be on earth as it is in heaven. What a, what a beautiful model to paint your church by. That here at Grace, when we love this community, when we give food or clothes or go on the art walks, when we come outside of these buildings, out of the safety of the confines of here, that we can show them a little bit of what heaven looks like. We can show them a little bit of the riches that we have. I know that they believe the narrative that the world tells them, that riches is power, money, and sex, and everything that's out there. But actually, riches is far greater than that. George Zayat, who's a New Testament scholar, he passed away some time ago. He says, the blessing of understanding the reality that we can experience heaven in the manner of speaking here, though not fully realized, but in a sense, is that we get Jesus here and now. Whereas in the next life, we will fully have him. We can have him now. We have the deposit Ephesians 2 says, we have the Holy Spirit who's, who's guaranteeing that right now. She says, it's better that I go, right, so that I can give you something greater, the Holy Spirit. And that's what he means. That we can experience the riches of heaven and we begin to realize that here and now. And I think we fall prey to the fact that we want the narrative that the world gives us, the story that the world tells us is what true riches is. Uh, I would... A mess if I did not tell you a Star Wars illustration before we're done here because I'm really excited for the movie game. I may or may not be dressing up. (laughs) I didn't tell the first service that. There's more adults than that one. (laughs) Man, I had a dream the other day. Oh, John Boyega and Daisy Ridley, these are the two new protagonists for the new Star Wars film. And like, I was the third person man. (laughs) No, like, we're not talking like an extra, like a stormtrooper, like the guy who holds the cactus in the desert, no. Like, I was one of the people for real. I remember we, in the dream we were going and we were signing autographs, and I was like, yeah, was taking pictures of people, and I remember standing next to like Daisy, and I was like, this is great. She's like, yeah, it's great. Like, you know, she talks, she's from another country, and I was just like, this is amazing. I can't believe I can't finally came out in Star Wars. I wanted to do this my whole life. <laughs> I was just like building this thing up, man. It was phenomenal. I was like, I'm rich, I can help people. <laughs> It was great. And then I woke up. Oh, man, it was like it was like a hangover or something. I mean, not that I know what that feels like, but I imagine it must feel like this. It was terrible. I just woke up and I was like, you're kidding me. I'm still in this ugly bed. My room is messy. My costume's right there. I was like, this is terrible. And as I lied there in bed, I... I remembered my third point of my list of my sermon here that we are rich in Christ. And I remember, ah, John, you bought into the story that the world has given you. That there's something better for you out there. That money and fame and power is gonna give you something greater than what Jesus has given you. And I remember thinking, dang, God, thank you for that very helpful illustration to remind me that. Even, even me, who knows theology and who's educated, is not above thinking that the world sometimes has something better to offer. And it's not true, but I believe it. Because I'm having dreams about it. <laughs> but it's not true, friends. We're rich in Christ, and He has so much more to give us. So you want to be children of God? How can I belong to a family, you say? You receive, you believe what Jesus has done for you. And you start living out those rights that he has given to you. The rights as children of God. You have a father, you have a family, and you have a fortune. You believe those rights and you act differently upon those rights. That's what it means to be a child of God. Let a pastor tell the story and uh, he played basketball, with seventh grade, and the season was ending, and it was a fantastic end to a season. And he said that as the season was ending, he said that the coach decided, had this brilliant idea that what the coach was going to do was the coach was going to, excuse me, have like a father-son game. It was like this big climactic finish where all the kids would invite their parents, and they'd have this glorious get-together where they'd all meet together at the end. And he said it was just such a joyful time. And he said he for the life of him begged his mother not to make him go. He said, mom, please, we'll tell him I'm sick. She said, we can't lie. And he said, please, I don't want to go. I hate it, I just don't want to do it. And his mom said, you're going. And he said the reason he didn't want to go was because he himself had daddy issues. He didn't have a father. And he was the last person that wanted to be seen on the court without a father. Big pizza party, it's supposed to be the end of the season. He just doesn't want to go because it's, it's too close to home. And he said that at the game, the coach brought everyone out. And as the coach brought everyone out, the coach put all the boys here and he put all the dads there. And one by one, they started calling out names and each boy would go to his father and they'd walk in this promenade fashion. And it was just this beautiful climax where all the boys and the families were together for this joyous experience. And sadness, he's looking down he feels like the lowest person on earth. Because he doesn't have a dad like every other boy. He didn't have that blessing. He says, he will never forget this. Looking down, saw a a pair of brown shoes. Mr. Sherman. He will never forget his name. Mr. Sherman put his hand on his shoulder. He says, it's been years, 30 years since that happened and he still remembers what it felt like for that that man to put his hand on his shoulder and this young boy without a father looked up and Mr. Sherman looked around and he said coach I know I've already got two sons he said but tonight I think I've got three tonight we're going to add one more to our family he put his arm around them, and he walked them. Jesus is in the business of welcoming more sons into the family. The Father is in the business of saying, tonight, coach, I have another son. I have another daughter. Believe what Jesus is doing and become a child of God. You have a father, you have a family, you have a fortune. Tonight. I have one more, son. We're going to pray. I want you to pray right now as a Grace family. I want us to think about ways that we can love each other better. Maybe this week, next week, maybe you want to buy a toy for someone. Maybe you want to tell someone in your Grace group that you really love them. Think about a very practical way that you can be a better family to another. Think about a way that you can start thinking about the Father in a different way. Think about the way that you're thinking about riches that are apart from Christ and how you can reprogram yourself. Very practical here. If you don't know Jesus today, I want you to talk to us. We want to love you. We want to pray for you. And we want you to be a child of God to experience these blessings. You pray for a minute or two, then I'll pray aloud. Father, we are gracious that we can call you Abba. We are gracious, God, that you're in the business of adopting, that you put your hand on our shoulders. And that you say, welcome to my family. And that when you do so, you are announcing, you're proclaiming that we can call you Father. That we have a family, we have brothers and sisters that can love one another. That we have a fortune, that we are rich in Christ with the Spirit, God. God, if we do not think of you as a Father in any other way than you reveal yourself, God. Change the way we think. Help us to know, God, that you are far more loving and gracious than what we give you credit for, God. Father, as a family, as the Grace family, God, help us to love the city of Fullerton better. Help us to love one another better, God. Help us to be interdependent brothers and sisters. They come not to clock in and out, God, but rather to come to love each other well and to do life as messy as it is together, God, in relationship, in community. And help us to love... Fullerton in such a way where we can display heaven as it is there, here on earth, God. So, God, in our final charge, God, I ask that you help us to understand that we must believe, surrender to the Lordship of Christ, that in doing so, we are children of God, not by our own will, your word says, not by the flesh or any desires we have, God, but because you have graciously sought to meet us there and rescue us. We're thankful for this promise, God, and we're thankful that we can be your children and receive those blessings and benefits. So help us to live them out, God. Thank you so much that we can approach the throne boldly and confidently as your children. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, everyone together, amen. Amen.